Okay, so we're in the third week of uh, Voices, and tonight uh, we're going to talk about the voice of people-pleasing and codependency. Yikes. Now, I could talk about codependency, in fact, for I don't even know how, probably for the last year and a half I've said that I'm going to do a whole sermon series on codependency probably even on a Sunday morning, but I haven't gotten there yet, but uh, it's something that it's probably one of the most prevalent things that I have to deal with. It's probably one of the most prevalent uh, problems in our culture. So I want you to consider that uh, when God gives His Ten Commandments, He begins by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the beginning point of God's commands to us. Now, he must have known something. He must have meant uh, something. Uh, looks like our slides might be crazy. Codependency is the voice that exalts others. Remember the last time we were together, which was two weeks ago because we didn't have church last time. It was the voice that exalts ourself. Remember that defense mechanism, the lawyer within us that protects ourselves when we get challenged? Well, in a codependent situation, so codependency, people-pleasing, enabling, it's all variations of the same thing, same dysfunction, same problem. Um, then everybody becomes your 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 hero everybody becomes the object of uh, what it is you're supposed to be focused on so God's first commandment is that we should have no one before him because he understood that when we we need to have a relationship with him where he's our top priority therefore he can then bless us and then work through us to be a blessing to others but when we don't do that all sorts of problems ensue. And so really, the, the primary problem with codependency is that it violates the heart of God's first commandment. It violates the heart of God's principle for us as we relate to Him, relate to others. And here's the thing, you know, uh, as we go through this, there'll be so many different things you can identify with. You know, a codependent person uh, is is in this relationship on one side or the other because it takes two to tango. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be with a person. We'll get into that in a minute. But what happens is is that you you sacrifice yourself on the altar of something else for whatever the perceived gain is that you have in your your head. Now, the reason this is such a huge problem is because we all have this inward desire to be accepted. All of us do. Now, remember, God comes along and He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So, it would only make sense that God would build into us, right? You, you say, well, well, why are we all so uh, hungry for acceptance? Well, God made us that way so that we would seek Him and fill that void with Him. So the, 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 the purpose for our desire to be accepted is to draw us to the only place we can find it. But what ends up happening is it gets perverted and turned into something it's not supposed to be. And so the flip side of that is we also have a natural fear of being rejected. Those two things are just two sides of the same coin. You want to be accepted, you have a desire to be, the more you want to be accepted, the more afraid you're going to be of being rejected. And so what happens is, is that in a million different ways, I mean, you know, it, it could be uh, parents who uh, are codependent with their children. It is unbelievably common. And you're codependent with your children when you you don't want your children to be upset with you. You don't want to, you put 
the friendship or the relationship with your children over what ought to be. Now, I don't think it's every day. It's every day. And I mean, we're just going off the cliff relationally. I mean, when I, I mean, I just can't even. Now, here's the principle that I need you to get, okay? Rejection breeds obsession. Now, this isn't good. It's just true. This is just the truth about how it works. Now, see, the Bible says in Proverbs 18, 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Who can bear it? And so what happens is it becomes something we obsess over. And so the pain of rejection will oftentimes lead to people becoming approval junkies. So here's what happens. You, you, you watch a television program where it's uh, talking about this person who, when they were young and they were in school, they were bullied and picked on and so on and so forth and now you know they're the CEO of a fortune 500 company or you know they're a, a model or whatever and so it's hey and so what we're going to do is we're going to call in the bullies and the people that laughed at you and mocked you and we're going to put you on the stage together and we're going to let and we're going to say remember this is the person you made fun of and now look at who they became you know that deal so, you know how the person who was bullied became the big muscle-bound, you know, workout fanatic? Or do you know how he or she became the Fortune 500 company CEO? Because every single day of their life, do you know what drove them? Their pain of what of the bullying and instead of going on there and saying you did this to me and now look at what I became what they ought to do is go on there and say thank you for bullying me because I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for you because what happens is when we get deeply wounded we obsess over that and you'd be amazed at how much that has to do with who you become because you allow it to control you your pain it, it drives us and so when we've been rejected, we'll do anything to avoid that pain again. Because who can bear it? Who can bear it? And so if we have some perceived inadequacy, we'll do anything to stop it. Now, the fear of rejection has two main consequences. The first thing that's going to happen is we just avoid people. We're going to avoid people that we perceive are going to bring pain. Either they've brought pain into our life and rejected us before, or... We think they're highly potential of that, so we just, we just stay away from them. We just avoid, avoid any situation where they're going to be, so we, we end up isolating ourselves and becoming the Unabomber. We're some nut in a cabin somewhere in the middle of a 10,000-acre ranch in Montana thinking about how to blow stuff up because we don't have any relationships with people. Because we, If you avoid every single person in your life that you perceive is going to bring you pain, well, guess what? you're going to turn into some freakazoid pretty quick. Where, where are you going to work? Where are you going to go to school? Where are you going to hang out? And for sure, where are you going to go to church? You ain't going to church. Because every church is full of wounders. Because wounded people come to church, and guess what wounded people do? Wound other people. So avoiding is a disaster, or we please them, which is the more common response. We just become a people pleaser. We're drawn to people pleasing. So all the, all the young boys that are in Awana right now that are subconsciously asking the question, where's my dad? How come my dad's never around? He lives at the house we live at. You know, I see him on Sundays or maybe a little bit on Saturday afternoon, but where is he? He's at work 70 hours a week because he can't say no because his priorities are all messed up. 
and he's convinced himself that, that he's the great white, he's got a savior complex, that he's, he's the great provider. Meanwhile, the thing that his family needs most from him, they don't get because he's a slave to his job. That's codependency. That's what that is. And every time his boss walks into the office, he says, yes, sir, I'll do it. I'll work extra. I'll do this. I'll do that. He can't say no to anybody. So see what we're going to we're going to turn people into something they weren't meant to be. Either you avoid so you turn people into obstacles. Or you're going to please people and you're going to turn turn them into vehicles. So they're going to get you something. They're going to get you're going to please them whatever the cost is to get wherever you want to go. And so though if if you want to make a uh an equation out of this problem, well, then it's my self-worth equals my performance plus people's approval. There's the uh, recipe for disaster right there. And here's the thing, that in codependent relationships, somebody in the relationship appears to be on the outside. They appear to be, you know, a a real capable, self-sufficient person. But in reality, they're desperately insecure filled with self-doubt, and dying for approval. And so they look so good because they are driven by the fear of rejection. So, church couple, daughter comes home, I'm pregnant. Son comes home, I'm gay. What happens? Freak out. Everybody freaks out. Now let me ask you a question. Did either of those two revelations just come out of nowhere? Or is it a hundred percent true that prior to her getting pregnant or him declaring that he's gay, before any of that revelation came about, mom and dad went to bed every night and slept sound like a baby every night. And the fact that their kid wasn't involved in church didn't bother them. They didn't keep them up at night. The fact that their child wasn't reading the Bible, that didn't keep them up at night. All the problems that were in their life, none of those things kept them up at night. But when they're pregnant or I'm gay comes up, it is a total disaster and we can't stop crying. We can't go to sleep. Our whole world is turned upside down. Now, explain that. How come, how come none of the symptoms bothered anybody? Because they're not embarrassing. You know what we're most afraid of? You know what all Christian parents are most afraid of? What everyone else can see. And whatever nobody can see, we'll sleep through the night. Because we fear rejection. We're petrified. What are people going to say? What are people going to think? Do you know that the science, see, eventually science always comes around and agrees with Pastor Tony. That's how it works out. So now I was so happy. Now I was going to post this on Facebook and I thought, you know, I'm not even sure. That, that might be an oxymoron of some sort. But anyway, so the, uh, some scientific research just came out proving, proving that social media 
use of social media is linked to bitterness and depression. Now, so, I mean, I've been telling you that for years, but now science now proves it, okay? So here's my question. Why is that? Why? Why? Because there's nothing inherently evil about Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. So why is it linked scientifically to bitterness and depression? Why those two things? And think about it. What does social media breed more than any other thing? Competition. Envy. Jealousy. Because all it is is a bunch of fake stuff. It's just people acting fake all the time. And so you're reacting to something that's not fake and feeling in, in, insecure, inferior to something, whether it's even true or not true or whatever. And so the point is, look, it's not because Facebook's evil. It's because we're broken. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is like, I, you know, I just, I just want you to get on the bandwagon of realizing you know, I think the, the value comes from just being self-aware. I'm as idiotic as anybody. But my goal in life is to just be self-aware enough to know of all the things I don't need to do. I don't not get on Facebook because I'm, I'm smarter than you or more mature than you. I don't get on Facebook because I can't handle all that. I, I, I understand that is a pit for me. I mean, think about it. Now, codependency. We can be codependent on a lot of things. You can be codependent on objects. It doesn't have to be people. It can be objects. You can have a chemical addiction. That's codependency. You're a slave to something, a drug, some mood-altering substance. You're a slave to that to, to get what you need to make you feel better. It, could be a, it can be a, a sexual addiction. It could be something physical like pornography. Because codependency, is, is all it is is an addiction. That's all it is. So it can be an object or it could be behaviors. Behaviors. So what about you can have an addiction to behaviors that appear to be bad, things that aren't widely acceptable and can be harmful. So you can so people develop uh, addictions to gambling or excessive spending or compulsive eating or sexual immorality or whatever the case may be and so that behavior becomes a codependency or it can be on the other side you can be codependent to something that appears on the outside to be good and is something acceptable see a lot of people have have a codependent problem with perfectionism or workaholism or caregiving Listen, you, you ever, you notice, think, think, think about this. I want you to be aware of this. Some of you, this is you. Some of you, you have these people around you, and you need to identify what's going on. Have you ever noticed that in every circle, I don't care what, every circle of people, every group of people, there's at least one who whenever there's a problem, like whenever somebody's got a big problem, they rush into the problem and start helping and caring and serving and giving. And, and it looks good on the outside. And we should do that. But if you watch close enough, what you're going to see is that some of those people go from one person's problems to the next person's problems to the ne in other words they don't 
they don't detach from this person until another person comes along with a problem that they can attach to, and they use other people's problems to avoid ever having to deal with anything themselves. Yeah, I see it all the time. All the time. Churches are filled with people that are broken in that way. And on the outside, a lot of people think, oh, look at how wonderful that is. Man, there's such a... And I'm thinking, are you blind? Can't you see that they're forever in that state? That's a problem. It's a problem. And then, of course, it can be people, which is the way we usually think about it. So it could be like a, a love addiction in which you feel your identity is in another person. So it's with a spouse, with children. Sometimes it's, you know, that's usually the most prevalent when you're younger and not married or sometimes even in marriage. But it'll be with a, a particular friendship that you obsess over, this one particular friendship that you can't live without this friend. And so... You, your, your identity is wrapped up in another person. And so now the other side of the coin is somebody has this savior complex or addiction in which they feel that their identity is in their ability to meet the needs of the other person. So see, we see this all the time. We see the, the woman who comes to church by herself for long periods of time. No husband. And she's praying and getting the, the people around her to pray for her husband. He's, you know, he's an alcoholic and he's an unbeliever and all this kind of stuff. And so, and so that's her big prayer request. And then God saves him and radically transforms him. And you can't run him out of church. And what happens? Ask Wade. How many times have we had to deal with that exact situation? And you know what? Next thing you know, she wants to divorce him. She can't stand him, can't get along with him because her identity is wrapped up in caring for him. And when he's not broken, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't exist. She needs a broken person. And if she does divorce him, you know what she does? She goes out and finds the most jacked up, broken person she can and marries that one so she can get right back into her comfort zone, which is taking care of a broken person. We've seen it the flip side, where the husband came without the wife. The wife got saved. Everything blew up. I mean, you're all, we're all celebrating. Look at what God did. And the next thing you know, the marriage is a total disaster. You see, that, you, you know, it's, it's whatever this is going to provide this momentary high. And you know the high is wrapped up in? Acceptance, value, identity. And so Proverbs 14, where the Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And you know what that way seems? It's always acceptance. It's like, man... This is whatever, wherever there's a place in your life that makes people think good of you and makes you feel good, you better watch out. That is an opiate. You better watch out for that. Because that thing will, that is the most addictive thing in the world. There's never been a drug invented that can compete with that. That's how we end up on drugs. The first gate we walked through was that. We, we're looking for, we're just, we're just trying to find that escape, that feeling. Here's what Dr. Ed Welch says. There's a bunch of his books in the library. Fear of man goes by many different names, including codependency, peer pressure, or people pleasing. Fear of man means that we give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. The Bible would say the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, that's why we long for acceptance, because God wants us to trust in Him. But when we substitute that for something else, it is a snare. 
It is going to get you. It'll get me. We got to be careful. Codependency is not just something that's going to affect you. It's going to get into every relationship around you. Now, you wonder, now, is there, are there Bible passages about codependency? Are you kidding me? Do you know how many choices I had? I could have I, I been in Genesis. There's all sorts of narratives in the Old Testament. And most of this entire chapter in the book of Mark, but we'll just deal with the first six verses. Look at what happens. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. So Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Well, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So that, that word, took offense, it's the opposite of believing in. Okay, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, let me just walk through this for a second. First thing I want you to realize is out to the side of that, I want you to write one year earlier, Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. One year earlier, Luke 4, 28 and 29. So a year earlier, Jesus went to the same place, and here's what the Bible says. He goes in, he teaches in the synagogue, he goes home, teaches in the synagogue, reads a scripture out of the book of Isaiah, then he tells them, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. Meaning, I am the fulfillment of this, right? That's what he tells them. And their response is, here it is, it'll come up on the screen. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him over the cliff. That's their response. That was a year ago. So a year passes, and what does Jesus do? Is he avoiding? Oh, negative. Straight in. Right back in. He goes back. Now, he goes back to his hometown, and, and I want you to think, think about this now. He's rejected not just by a group of people. The Bible wants you to understand. These are the people that know him the most. These are the people that watched him grow up. They watched him on the t-ball field. They were his second-grade school teacher. They knew his parents. They knew the whole story. They knew everything about him. They were the closest people in the world to him, which means they're the people who can do the most harm to him, that can hurt him the deepest, right? Of course. And so what do they attack? Go look at verse 3. Look at what they say. Is this not a carpenter? What? They're attacking his pedigree. In other words, they're attacking what he what he his occupation growing up right working with his father which is very closely woven into our identity right is what we do and so they attack that and then they say probably the most hurtful thing of all they go the son of mary now, have you heard that anywhere else in the Bible? Have you ever anywhere else in the Bible heard somebody refer to somebody as the son of the mother and not the father? You've never heard that. It's the sons of Zebedee. It's always the son of the father. It's never the son of the mother unless Well, this is Jesus. We don't even really know who the father is. See, we were here. We remember. You know, Mary, oh, just turned up pregnant, remember? 
And then she made up this big story about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right, sure. So really, he's like some bastard child. That's what they're saying. This is so dirty and wrong and hurtful and just horrible. This is what they're saying to Jesus. And if this was any of us, we'd be devastated. But what does he do? He turns and heals people. In other words, the Bible makes it clear that he couldn't do all that he wants to do. But you know what? He did everything he could do, which is astonishing. His love for them was so great that he did everything he was, he, everything he was capable of doing around their unbelief. He healed the people he could. And then he didn't just hightail it out of town. He ministered on his way out to all the villages around. So now let's think about this for a second. See, Jesus loved people, so he didn't need to use people. But the key is, is that he, today, when somebody says today, I mean, I am so just inundated with this conversation that even when I hear somebody say, well, they love them, I kind of bristle up a little bit. Because when the average person uses the word L-O-V-E, I am petrified of what they mean. Because it's so convoluted. You, you can use the word love to, to, to just uh, excuse anything. To talk your way around anything. To just be, I mean, the most dysfunctional, unhealthy, irrational, unbiblical behavior in the world. And I hear people say, well, I only did it because I love them. What? How do you define love? Jesus is how we define love. If you, if, if you want to love someone, then you love them the way Jesus loved them. That's the way you love them. That's the only way love works. You can't make up your own version of love and then call it the same thing, because it's not. Now let's think about this for a second. So here Jesus is. He's 100% man and 100% God, right? So he's not more man than he is God, and he's not more God than he is man. You got that? He's 100% both sides, right? So the fact that he, he prays and trusts God through the trials that he faces, just like we do, that ought to cause us some pause. Because clearly, if he's 100% God and 100% man, which he is, but the fact that, that he's 100% God, just think about it, but yet he gets up early in the morning before anybody else and goes and prays to the Father. He fasted. Think about this. He's 100% God, yet he fasts. Isn't that telling us? that there's more to prayer and fasting and seeking the face of God than just getting the things we want? I mean, doesn't, I mean, clearly, or that wouldn't even make any sense. And the Bible comes along and says, now we have a high priest, remember Hebrews 4, who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every way, in every respect, was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he endured and went through and sought the face of God but he didn't treat people like they were obstacles to be avoided. And he didn't treat people like they were vehicles to be used to get what he wanted from them. Neither one of those things. How was he able to do this? What is the secret that Jesus possesses? And the thing is, it's so simple and so obvious in this text and every other text that I think it's, it's almost, it's like the giant fluorescent Easter egg that's in the middle of the yard that no kid seems to be able to find. 
It's right there in the middle of it, just jumping out. Look at verse 4. They wound Jesus with their, with their harpooning words, and Jesus said to them in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. What an amazing statement. Why is... Now, why does he say that? What is he saying when he says that? He's declaring who he is. All he is doing is reminding himself of his identity. In other words, these people just said the most horrific thing. Do you think Jesus said that to them? Is there anything in verse 4 that leads you to believe that the reason Jesus said that was in some way to him thinking that those people were going to change or turn or repent? Negative. He didn't say that because of them. He said that because of him. He said that for me and you who would read it 2,000 years later. That's why he said it. You don't think, you know, here we are, you know, cross-pollinating all over the place with the book of 1 Corinthians. God's trying to tell us something. All their condemning words and their hurtful statements, they can't devastate Him. You know why? Because He knows who He is. If you know who you are, if you just obey the first commandment, codependency can't live. Enabling can't live. Because what happens is when you, when you put no other God before, before God, when He's on top, then everybody else underneath, you can hurt their feelings and they can hurt your feelings. And it's not going to change. And here's the thing, whatever truth flows out of the top, see, because what dictates all the relationships below it? The truth that flows out of the top relationship. So if the top relationship is I want my kids to love me, then God is second, third, or fourth. But the way I relate to God, He's submissive to my children's response to me or to my spouse or to whatever it is. Which is why I don't call the police or get in my car or drive down there. Which is why I pay for my son to be a part of the very thing that I know is illegal that leads to his death. Think about it. Because I can't do anything about it. Because if I do, he's going to be mad. But if God's on the throne of your life, who cares if he's mad? The only thing that matters is what is true. See, we're not going to let somebody, uh, we're not going to let some, we're not going to stay in an unhealthy relationship if God's on the throne of our life. You can't do that. That's impossible. Because you know this is wrong. This can't be. This can't be right. You're not going to enable someone to continue to do something that's harmful to them and convince yourself that you love them you can't do that if God's on the throne of your life. You, the only way you can do that is by elevating that, that thing above God. Jesus rested in the declaration of His heavenly Father over Him. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus gets baptized, who baptizes Jesus? John the Baptist. And when Jesus was walking up to John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that what he said? So let me ask you a question. When John is baptizing Jesus, is there any, is there even one tiny molecule of doubt in the Bible, that John does not absolutely, positively know who he's baptizing. He 100% knows who he's baptizing, right? 
Yes. So then my question to you is, why, when he baptizes Jesus and Jesus comes up, a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Who's there at this moment? Is that, is that for John to hear? No, John already knows that. Does the Bible say there's a crowd of people around all listening to God to speak to them? Nope. Who's God's talking to? Jesus. Whose benefit is that statement for? Jesus. He's declaring, this is your identity. This is also the inauguration of his earthly ministry. In other words, this is the moment where what's about to begin? All hell's about to break loose. He leaves that moment and goes out in the wilderness and faces Satan for 40 days. So before all hell breaks loose, what is the one thing God wants you to know above everything else before all hell breaks loose? Who you are in Him. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't, codependency had no chance with him because he knew who he was. He doesn't need other people's acceptance. Listen, when, you know what Jesus did? Jesus told the truth. Did Jesus hurt people? He slaughtered people's feelings. He annihilated people's feelings. How many times did people get in a huge huff and just walk out on him? And what did he do? Let them go. He didn't run after him. Hang on, I didn't mean it like that. You're taking it the wrong way. Listen, it wasn't all caps. It was small print. Did he do that? In other words, but here's the thing. How is it in our culture? You say the truth to somebody, they get in a huff and walk away, and you're somehow... Look, even in a Christian circle, the people around you would say, well, you just didn't say it in a loving enough way. I want to punch somebody in love. I want to punch you in love, in the face. It's insanity. Listen, this isn't in your notes because I promised myself I wouldn't get off in this, but I can't help it. Here we are. If I had a penny for every single time that I have said this, I have said this in my office so many times, I, there's no telling, thousands of times, I look across my desk at somebody who is in a horrible, broken situation, and I'm relating to the brokenness that they're facing. And I say, listen, I understand. I understand how painful this is and how hurtful this is, and I, but please listen to what I'm about to tell you. You never make a decision based on another person's reaction. Never, ever, ever. You don't do that. Listen. If you do that, it is going to be a disaster. And you're not, you, don't love, you, you don't love whoever you're talking about. You don't love them. You never, ever make a decision based on another person's reaction. What do we make decisions based on? Truth. So listen, the reason why... Uh, my wife says, I, the reason why I'm so bristly, which is a nice way of saying something else, because when, when me and you are in a relationship together, there's one thing I'm fixated on. What is the truth? And, and how you're going to react to what I'm going to say is a secondary issue. I'm not saying I don't care about it, but I'm saying that ain't the number one thing in my life. If it's true, I'm saying it. And if, if it's true, I expect you to say it. And if, you, if I know that you know that it's true and you don't say it to me, I don't respect you. And you know what you ought to not do? The same thing. 
If you got people in your life and you know they don't tell you what's true, you shouldn't respect them. They don't love you. What matters, listen, nothing trumps the truth. Nothing trumps the truth. We live in a culture that has built a giant house of cards on feelings, and they're leading us astray. You can't do that. People, people die because people won't tell the truth. We ruin our kids because we won't tell the truth. You know what little Johnny needs? He needs his feelings hurt. That's what he needs. And if you just started doing that when he was eight, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. See, the world tries to tell us, well, it's my self-worth and my performance equals God's approval, just like we said a minute ago. But that's not the gospel equation. That's not, the, that's not what Jesus operated on. The gospel says my self-worth equals Christ's performance and God's approval. You see, in Hebrews chapter 10, if you go home tonight and you read Hebrews chapter 10, start to all the way from verse 1 all the way to 18, you're going to see all of these things listed out. All these sins and all these wrong behaviors and all these problems. And then you get to verse 18 and the Bible says, Now there is forgiveness of these and there is no longer any offering for sins. Period. That's just how it is. See, Jesus knew that, that his relationship with the Father wasn't based on him getting up early in the morning, going to pray, or him doing this or him doing that. Or, no, see, the Father loved him. The, 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 there's love in the Trinity that we experience, according to John 17, when we come into this relationship, now that the Father loves us the way the Father loves the Son, it's not based on performance. But here's what happens. You, this is where we get duped. We think that because if we don't do this and this and this and this, that God doesn't love us. And we feel like by not doing this and this and this. So here's what happens. We equate feeling distant from God. Did you hear what I just said? Feeling distant from God with God's, God's uh, not loving us. And you're mixing apples and oranges. Those are two different fruit. That's not how that works. See, the apple is God loves you. You're the apple of his eye. Nothing can ever change that. You didn't, you didn't behave your way in, so you can't behave your way out. So apples are God loves you unconditionally. He loves you if you get up and read your Bible for two minutes, two hours, or zero. He still loves you the same. It never changes. Oranges are when you act like a moron, you're going to experience consequences. But that ain't got nothing to do with apples. But when we do things we shouldn't do, we feel something and we equate it to being what it is. That's not the Bible. But if we live by the truth, then we don't have that problem. You see? You got to live by the truth. Your feelings are, man, they are such a... They're just a liar. They lie. Codependency is believing that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not enough to restore my dignity. I mean, think about it. How in the world can a Christian person be codependent and yet, oh my gosh, it is a catastrophe. And those are two things that cannot mix together. Like they're just polar opposites. You see, codependency, whether you're, whether you're the, 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 the needy one or the, or, the, or the one with the Savior complex who needs the needy one in your life, either way around it, Jesus comes along, lives, dies, and raises from the dead as a declaration 
to everyone who believes in him, everyone who surrenders to him, everyone who becomes his son or daughter. You're adopted into a new family. You get a new identity. And at the very bottom basic level of that new identity is you are now accepted. You're justified. You're declared right with God. You got that? And nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever change the fact that you're declared right with God. And yet, at the same time, codependency is, but I need this person to make me feel good. or I need. And here's the thing. Think of the last time you, as a blood-bought believer in Christ, nothing makes me more frustrated and just sick to my stomach than when I realize that I'm devastated because somebody doesn't think well of me. I I literally want to puke because it is a declaration that Jesus did not do enough. I need something else. See, the fact that Jesus justified me and He's okay with me, that ought to trump everything else. That's exactly what Jesus did in Mark 6. They slam him, and he says, basically, the paraphrase is, but you know what? I'm right with the Father. Man, we are just totally missing this thing. Codependency makes zero sense for the Christian. Well, let's see, here's why. Because our mission is not only to take the gospel to the unevangelized places of the world, we've got to take the gospel to the unevangelized places in our soul. Man, we, I mean, like, we need to send a mission team into your heart to tell you who you are so you can live like you're supposed to live. See, God wants us to live in a world where we we tell each other, you know what, hey, I don't think that's right. See, and look, I may not be positive about it. So we ought to be able to have a conversation about it. Like, in other words, we ought to be able to have a conversation where somebody says, you know, I'm not sure that's right. Well, Okay, well what, do you, well, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. Well, let's talk about it. Let's, well, what does Scripture say? What do we... Well, I mean, why is somebody getting mad about it? And if I know it's wrong, then you know what? You know it's wrong. I mean, come on. So why can't we just live in a world where we all just speak the truth to each other? See, we think speaking the truth in love is saying it in such a way where they won't get their feelings hurt. That is not what that means. Speaking the truth is love. You see, look, if if hurting people's feelings by speaking the truth was sin, Jesus sinned all over the place in the New Testament. we got to say what's true. Man, if every parent would just start saying the truth to their kids. Have any of y'all ever been around my wife and thought, no, that was harsh? And probably, if you have, you probably, you probably heard her talk to my kids and think, Man, I can't believe she said that. She said it. You know what happens in my house when, 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 uh, look, you know the things I make fun of myself about? How do you think I know those things? Did you ever think about it? How do you think I figured out that I can't sing? Because you know when I was single, I thought I sounded good. In my head, it sounds good. But I married somebody that said, whoa. You're going to have to zip that out. Bad. 
mean, you hang around my house, you're going to know everything you're bad at. <laughs> and you're going to know everything you're good at. But that's healthy. My kids ain't going to be on American Idol up there making a fool of themselves thinking they can sing when they know they can't. Because their parents wouldn't tell them, oh, my baby sounds so good. You know you lied. <laughs> See, we're trying to get something from a creature that we have infinitely received from the Creator. That's the crazy thing. Like, we have received infinite, unshakable, unchangeable, invincible acceptance from God. And yet, we're running around trying to get acceptance from other people. And, and the reason I think that it gets so, you know, it's, it's, it's just become, it's just in our culture, it's just part of the way we live is because it's, it's a mixed up motivation to help, but because it is a motivation to help, somehow we use that as an excuse. You see, you can do something blatantly wrong and horribly uh, damaging with the right motivation. You know what the guy who went in the, the grocery store and shot up all the people was doing? He thought he was doing the right thing. That's why he did it. Everybody that does some insane thing thinks they're doing the right thing. That's why they do it. So don't drink your own Kool-Aid by convincing yourself or the people that are broken around you because they're trying to, well, because they mean to do the right thing. No, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. All right, Galatians 6. We've got to hurry. Here we go. Brethren, if a man is overtaken by a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you be tempted also. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, then he is nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, this is what my question. I'm, gonna, I'm in a hurry. Now, is, does verse 2 and verse 5 contradict each other? Which, of course, you know the answer is no, because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But it looks like it does. And here's what I want you to understand. What's in the middle of 2 and 5? What is verse 3 and 4 about? Comparison. You see that? It's right there in your Bible. We could have just used this text. And what is this text saying? In verse 2, when it says bear one another's burdens, that word burden right there, is that means something that is uh, unusually difficult. So that's what you do when somebody has somebody die suddenly in their family or their house burns to the ground or something. You go and you bear that burden. You got that? That's what that is. And, but when it says you bear your own load, you know what that is? That's the normal everyday things of life. So do you know what codependency? You, you, you should not do anything for anyone that they can do for themselves. Anyone. That's not healthy. That's not helpful. It's enabling. See, God has this amazing built-in system in the universe. It's amazing. He built it into the whole universe, so everything in the universe operates this way. It's called, it, it, it keeps us on the straight and narrow, or it drives us to the right thing. And you know what it's called? It's an amazing thing. Consequences. But do you know what happens in a codependent Enabling. We're running around. Listen, when you protect someone from the consequences, you're short-circuiting the God-ordained operation of the universe, and therefore they don't learn the lesson from that, which is why it keep, the problem keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can't figure out why it keeps getting bigger. 
And the reason it keeps getting bigger is because you keep taking the pain away. And so the pain keeps getting larger. And then you get in a real problem because now, once you've ignored this for a while, it gets to the point where if you ignore it, it could be life or death. So what do you do then? And Satan just got you by the neck. Consequences are not your enemy. They're our friend. They're our friend. And so you know what we want? We want consequences to be executed in the people around us' lives as early on as possible. The earlier, the better. Don't, don't do something for someone that they ought to be doing for themselves. So you see, Jeremiah chapter 2 talks about how we, we, forgot, we forget God, days without number. It's amazing. You know, even the Bible in the Old Testament is like, how is that possible? But yet we do it. And then in the New Testament, the Lord comes around and He says, He institutes, for example, baptism, which we'll have this Sunday, the Lord's Supper. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and when we do that, we, we, we do that because the Bible says, do this in remembrance of me. Now think about it. To a people who have, a, have an unbelievable penchant to forget God, God comes along and says, do this in remembrance of me, and what is it that he says to do? Now, now think about it. Does God, say, does, God, does God say, you know what, celebrate the time that I sent lightning down from heaven and killed a bunch of people. Celebrate the time. Think of all the things God could have said. Celebrate this and remember this. Remember how I opened up the earth and swallowed up a bunch of people because they were in the book of Leviticus because they were uh, uh, unfaithful. Does he say, hey, you know in the book of Numbers when people were acting stupid, so I just sent a whole bunch of snakes after them. Why don't you celebrate that every... That's what you do. Celebrate, have the, the feast of the snakes. Remember that. He don't say that. He says, remember what I did for you so that you know who you are in me. See, take this cup. This is my blood right here. This is my blood. This isn't a game. It's not a joke. I drained the blood out of my son's body for you. Celebrate this. Oh, this bread there, this is his body that hung on that cross for you. Celebrate that. Remember that. Focus on that. Why? That's what we, because that's, that is what we need to remember. That's what we've got to constantly remind ourselves, that every time we feel the urge to not say what needs to be said or not do what needs to be done or to allow somebody to continue to, tr to uh, treat us in a way that's unhealthy or, what, or to people to, to or, or give up things that are more valuable to try to make people think well of us, or what, then we stop and go, wait a minute, Jesus died for me. My identity is in Him. So I'm going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. I'm not going to allow you to keep treating me this way. I'm not going to allow myself to get sucked into something where I'm the Savior and you're looking to me as the one who's going to fix you. No. No. you got to learn to think on your own. So you can call me up for a season and say, hey, pastor, I don't know what to do. And hey, pastor. But there comes a point in time where guess what? It's like, hey, it's time to go. It's time to fly out of the nest. School leaders, not your savior. Your D group leaders, I'm not your savior. Your Sunday school leaders, not your savior. Your D group leaders, not your savior. Jesus is. You got to look to him. See, codependency, it's, it's a gospel issue. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a gospel issue. So if you have misplaced dependency, then you already know this is true. There's no peace with God and there's no peace of God. And do you know why these two things run together? 
People who are in codependent, enabling, they struggle with this addiction. You know what they do? You struggle with legalism big time. They always go hand in hand. Because you always feel like God's upset with you. Because you're, you're taking your codependent relationship. Remember, God's not on the top. He's on the bottom. So God's filtered through the codependent relationship that's on top. And so whenever I talk to somebody who is codependent about God, they always say, well, and they start telling me all the ways they disappoint God. Man, I hope some of you get freedom tonight. It's a lie. It's a lie. If you put the Lord first, just live each day dependent on Him. You'll have God's peace even when others are not peaceful towards you. He'll give you peace. Now I put two checklists on the back page for you. You can go home and get self-aware. 